morning. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 18, we are back in my series in Acts, which we are calling Family History as we look at the beginning of the early church. We have, uh, thus far as we've been going through, we've looked at Paul as he is really reaching out to Gentile cities. So he is, he is moving beyond just trying to reach uh, Jewish people in particular, but now feels like the mission is opening up and he's reaching out all over the place. We've seen his interaction in Athens. And if you recall, when we were in Athens, he was dealing with a really intellectual group He got into philosophy, he did a lot more theologizing, a lot more debate. But today he comes to Corinth. And there are a few things you should know about Corinth before we get into it. Firstly, the Corinthians were really proud. Uh, They were proud of, they had a beautiful city. Julius Caesar had remade this city in 46 BC. Uh, They were at the center of trade. So all roads kind of led through Corinth, and Corinth was a place if you went to the market, you could find things you couldn't find anywhere else. And certainly this sense of access and economic prosperity really made them feel good about who they were, what they were doing. At the same time, and maybe because of these things, they were famous for their immorality, Uh, maybe kind of like Sin City of the day. But not only were they famous for their immorality, but it was literally folded into worship for them. Uh, They worshiped Aphrodite, and by night they had a thousand female slaves would wander the streets as prostitutes. Sexual hedonism was seen as a mode of worship, not just something for pleasure. And so it's into this unique environment, at least for Paul, that he steps. He hasn't really been in an environment quite like this. And he walks into it, and we're going to look at what happened So follow along with me. Let's start Acts 18. We're going to read through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you, thank you for the encouragement that it is to us, for the ways that you are present with us, the ways you speak to us. May we hear you now, in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a history guy. It's one of my, I majored in English in college, but somehow missed my required history class until one of those devastating moments in the advisory office, you know, when they go like, 
hey, where is that history class you were supposed to have taken? Um, and in that final year, it did this you know, big survey history course, hundreds of people, most of them sleeping, and I was just wrapped with attention and like, man, if I took this earlier, I would have double majored, no doubt. Uh, so I love history, and one of, um, one of the most popular you know, events to analyze World War II, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with Band of Brothers, which was a big HBO series, but better than that, it's a really great book about a true story about paratroopers and World War II, and you should read it, it's, it's incredible. One of the stories that stood out to me in the book by Stephen Ambrose, Band of Brothers, is, so Band of Brothers about World War II starts and several of the men realizing that they could just be drafted decide, I don't want to be drafted, I want to go in with the absolute best. Uh, they wanted to go in with people who had received elite training. And so they preempted any kind of draft and just signed up for the 101st Airborne Paratrooper Division. The original amount of men who signed up were 5,300, and the charge for the men training them was to whittle that number down from 5,300 to 1,800. Their tactics for doing this were pretty brutal. Uh, so they had a three-mile hill that they had to run four times a week in 50 minutes. Uh, and in one of these times, they would make them run this consistently, consistently. Uh, they didn't feed them super well. One day, they decide we're going to have a celebratory meal. They give them all this spaghetti. And of course, right in the middle of the meal, they say, oh, time to run the hill. And all the men going up, you know, vomiting their spaghetti all over the hill, these kind of tactics. Uh, they marched 11 miles on their first night march, and a mile or two was added each march. They had a canteen of water, but they were not allowed to drink from it. Uh, at the end of each march, their superior would ask them to check their canteens to make sure no one had consumed any water. If they had, they had to do it again. One colonel spread the intestines of pigs on the ground, had the men crawl through it as they fired live ammunition over their heads. And at the end of training, to celebrate how successful they'd been, they marched 118 miles in 75 hours. That's four miles an hour with full equipment. Uh, several of them had almost long-lasting foot damage and that kind of thing, and had to carry each other across the line. It was very publicized. The military had told newspaper outlets, this is what we're doing if you want to come watch these men do this. And so there was tons of pressure on them to actually pull this off. <clears throat> And of course, on top of all this, they actually had to jump out of airplanes. And so when they finally got to the point where they began training, jumping them out of airplanes, it was a simple thing. They had to do three big jumps, and if they refused to jump, they were out. After all that training, it was over. So they do all this, and they finally get their wings. They get attached. They are in the 101st Airborne. It's been whittled down, and they're given a couple of days off with a strict command on when they're supposed to return. So the men all leave, they go get their first rest in months, and then they return. Well, as it might have it, a few of them come back late. And the next morning, all the men are assembled, somebody stands up with a list of some names, reads out the list of the names, these are the men who came late, asked them to stand forward, they took the wings off, said you're excused from the 101st Airborne, and officially demoted them, sent them back down to normal ranks. While what irked the paratroopers who remained, they said not only was it just a shameful thing, but there was a photographer taking pictures of this happening. These men one by one being brought forward and excused from their duty, despite all the work they had put in. 
I think about that story pretty often uh, because I think it's such a perfect encapsulation of like humanity's greatest fear that you're in company with people you feel like you belong with and your name is read out because you don't, right? We've never been more transparent with so much of our lives online and the cost of that transparency has never felt higher. Some of the very core ethics in Christianity are increasingly seen as really offensive and I think as a result, a lot of Christians are just really afraid so my main point today, what I want to look at, there's a lot going on in this passage, actually go a lot of directions, but I really just want to hone in on one kind of simple thing. I just want to look at how the beginning of how we answer fear has to start with the divine presence of God. It's pretty simple. And so we have two points today. We're going to look at the fear of people and the encouragement of God in light of that fear. So let's start by the fear of people. I want to be honest with you. As we've been going through Acts I found Paul to be a pretty intimidating guy. I mean, obviously he's like Apostle Paul. I get that. But when you're going through the Gospels, you get dirt on people, you know? Peter messes up like all the time. And you're like, yeah, Peter, that's me. James and John are nuts. Like, people make mistakes. Martha is too busy to sit at the feet of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I find these mistakes to be comforting, that I am not alone. Paul, however, is just awesome all the time. He is Action Hero 101. Uh, and you think about, like, at the beginning, he's, he's against Christianity. He's persecuting it. And, man, when Jesus shows up, he turns on a dime. And every town he goes into, he goes to the most populated place. He's speaking. He gets beat relentlessly. It's, like, on his resume. I'm a guy who gets beaten. And he just keeps going and doing it over and over. And I find him pretty intimidating, which means that... As we were reading, when we got to Acts 18.9, and Jesus, the Lord, shows up to Paul and says, do not be afraid, like, ha ha! Why would Jesus feel like he needs to say, do not be afraid to Paul, unless Paul was afraid? <laughs> so we got him, Paul's a human, we can go about our day. All right, but this is, this is an interesting moment, because it's kind of the chink in the armor, the warrior Paul, this incredible guy, is actually afraid. I have no idea what that sound is. <laughs> Mildly terrifying. I am also afraid. <laughs> I trust Kevin and Tech will figure it out. I always like to point out that Tech is never noticed unless things are going wrong. But Tech does a really good job here. Just, yeah, round of applause for Tech and all the work they're doing. I'm sure they'll figure it out. If not, it really sounds like we're about to blow up. It's been a good run. All right. So, Tech, is there like, what's the... Okay, we don't know. I'm going to make this sermon a little shorter. All right. So, Paul comes in. He is actually legitimately afraid. And sure enough, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, I come to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. So we have to start here. Why? We're going to focus. We're going to do this, guys. Every now and then in my class, something will happen that's distracting. And we're going to put our eyes up here. We're going to do this. We're capable <laughs> of doing this. All right. You should see what happens in my class when, like, a bee gets out of the room. 
So we have to start here. Why is Paul afraid? That's just better. Honestly, there's a lot of debate about this. And it's vague enough that I think your answer about why Paul's afraid might say a little more about us than it would about Paul. But I, I have a, an option here that I think is the best option. I think Paul is afraid in Corinth because he knows the reputation of Corinth. He knows that Corinth, yeah, well done. All right. <laughs> well done, well done. Okay, all right. I hope Middlecoff's not watching this. All right. Paul is afraid of the reputation of Corinth and just how confrontational the cross is going to be, I think. Corinthians were famously proud of their city, their intellect, their immorality is really famous. And the truth of the matter is, evangelism is easiest when people feel the weight and shame of their sin. That's true. The person who walks around with cosmic guilt, a sense that they have offended God, is going to find comfort in the cross. These are kind of the dream evangelism conversations, right? Because the church gets to give the good news and it's received as good news. Hey, you who are burdened by your sin and weighed down by your guilt and haunted at night by the failures, we're here to tell you the good news. The good news is, starts with one, you're right, we are burdened with failures, but two, those are answered by Jesus on the cross. That kind of conversation happens, and it's sweet when it happens. Many of us in this room have been the recipient of that kind of thing, feeling really burdened by our personal failures and our guilt and our sin, and Jesus relieves it. So the great honor of the church in that situation is coming alongside and saying, guess what? Along with Paul, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God as testified by Christ, and that's good news. Well, evangelism is hardest when we don't feel the weight of sin. And maybe even more than that, we celebrate sin. A friend of mine was recently giving counsel to a student and just casually said, well, we are all broken. And the student said, I'm not broken. That's toughest, right? Because that requires a confrontation. More often than not, I've found that that lesson about our own kind of internal failures, it's not normally an intellectual one. It's one that kind of life has to teach us. You live long enough, I think eventually you're surprised by something wicked you do. It drives you to this moment like, I didn't think I was that kind of person. But maybe I am. So what Paul is stepping into is he's stepping into this difficult form of evangelism. The good thing about the gospel, the thing that Paul knows, is that it's good news, and it's good news for him too. Politics basically say they are wrong and need to be defeated, but Christianity, we say, rightly understood, we say we are wrong and need mercy. And that's the message that Paul steps into Corinth. But he knows that stepping in is going to require that second confrontation. It's going to require saying, hey, uh, the worship of Aphrodite, the prostitutes roaming the streets, that form of worship, that's something not to celebrate but to be repented a real gospel confrontation at Corinth is going to require radical change. People are going to have to give up lifelong habits and livelihood to follow Jesus. It's a big ask, as it always is. And I think this gets to Paul. He feels the weight of what he has to say. At the same time, Paul's got to be tired. He's been traveling for a long time. He's been alone for a lot of it, I think. He has been beaten publicly, as I've mentioned. 
Every encounter of his has so much weight to it. And while we read him, you can't help but wonder, too, as he moves on, does he ever have a moment where he just wonders, like, did I handle that correctly? Did I say that right? Is there that extra person that I was really tired and I had a chance to talk to them and I just didn't? Do those things follow him around? What's even more ironic is this moment when Jesus appears and says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. It's coming after some success. The verse before, it says many Corinthians hearing Paul believe and are baptized. People are starting to actually listen to the message, and it's then when he seems to have this kind of breakdown and feel this deep fear. But it shows us that success wasn't enough to calm his fears. It wasn't, it wasn't like, well, if I see the gospel going forward, then I won't be afraid. It was something deeper rooted than even context and success. Some of you have seen uh, the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. Some of you just watched Michael Jordan back in the day. Well done. Uh, I was having to explain to some of my students Michael Jordan. I was like, I'm getting old. All right. <laughs> Michael Jordan, uh, as a friend, you know, Michael Jordan, if you ever watched him play basketball, one of the greatest, he transcended the sport. Uh, you know, he's in Space Jam. He, he's, a, he's a person larger. Michael Jordan is a person larger than life. And if he's in the playoffs, you're watching the playoffs because Michael Jordan's playing. And it just felt like no matter what you threw at Michael Jordan, he rose above it. If he got sick, he played sick and hit the game-winning shot. He was just that guy. It was a total joy to watch him play basketball. But what's been interesting in his retirement is the same thing that caused us to praise him during his career has been just made his retirement just absolutely miserable. He's the most competitive human you've ever heard speak. And as uh, one of my friends like, it's a good thing he had a positive outlet for that competitiveness because really the most competitive person. And you'd like to think, and even with those paratroopers uh, from the 101st, I'm sure they face something similar going to war. You'd like to think that when it's over, you could just go, hey, Michael Jordan, he was the greatest basketball player to ever have lived. Yes, the greatest. And you have transcended everything. You're a media empire. You have shoes with your face on it. You've made millions of dollars. You even went and tried to play baseball and did pretty well. Don't know what that was about. But you've accomplished everything humanly possible to accomplish. Sit back, enjoy the fact that you did that. Enjoy your life. But that competitive engine just couldn't be turned off. That same thing that made him so great, made it so has made it so difficult for him in retirement. Well, I, I sometimes think what Christianity is, does for us is we are a little like, we have these instincts on how we cope with fear, the engine's on. And Christianity comes and says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And it's just really hard to turn that engine off. It's just really hard to trust that if I turn that engine off, things will be okay. In particular, it seems to me like our responses to fear are either kind of a brazen brashness, like uh, I am who I am, here it is, let's go, I'm going to be really in your face about it, and that'll be a way I cope with my fears, I'm going to be over the top, check social media for these examples, or two, you just really keep your head down. Maybe you have some things in particular like 
I think if I thought more about these particular things, I would have some convictions, but I'm a little afraid of conviction because it might require me to do or say things I don't want to do or say. And so we have those two responses, either kind of brazen brashness or keep our head down, right? Christianity offers us something different. It says you can shut down the engine. We don't need it anymore. We don't need that way of coping with fear. Paul doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't come in and say, all right, well, here it is, let's go, or I need to back off. As he says in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, I came in weakness, and I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let's look at that. Let's look at what the encouragement of God does for us. So the fear of people, it's real, but let's look at the encouragement of God. This is what Jesus says, and when he says, the Lord said to Paul, it's very clearly, it's a vision kind of of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, this is a specific promise to Paul at a specific time. Okay? He doesn't make this promise that no one will harm you to say Stephen, who's martyred at the beginning of Acts, if you remember. But the underlying principle is still the same. God answers fear with his presence, and he expresses that through his word and through his people. God answers fear through his presence, and he expresses that through his word and through his people. This is the Christian answer. I'm not saying we don't use all tools available to us to deal with our fears. There's great therapy, there are great social sciences that teach us to things, but for Christians, we get to start with this. God is with me. Yes, even messed up, broken me. Uh, there's been a pretty consistent argument over the last few years that the kind of gospel-centered, gracious approach to evangelism was the luxury of another era. That there was a time when America was more sympathetic to a certain brand of Christianity, but now things are getting really serious it's time to go to culture war and be a realist about where we're at. As I hear that crop up from time to time, I want to say this. You are right. A compassionate, gospel-driven approach is a luxury. It's a luxury because Jesus has won the ultimate battle on the cross. It's a luxury you and I can afford to luxuriate in. That's totally true. If there were no Jesus who died and resurrected, then we should... We should get out there and fight tooth and nail. But if Jesus died and resurrected and conquered death and promises us new life, then we can, the luxury of being Christians, is I can just do ministry that just looks meaningless to the world around me. I had a friend who was a, a pastor um, for some elderly, at the elderly person's home, and there are a lot of people who, looking at him, saw his gifts, his talents, and were like, you could be you could be big, you know, you could do, why are you wasting your time here? That's what Christians do. That's what we can do. We can do the Bible study with three people in it without going, man, I really need a hundred people to validate me because Jesus validates us. That's who we are. Awesome. I think it's awesome. <laughs> I don't have to worry about how many retweets or likes Christianity gets. Because I know that the true battle is not fought in the court of public opinion. It was fought on the cross, and Jesus won that battle on the cross. 
In another way, it, is, it uh, isn't a luxury in this sense. A compassionate, gospel-driven approach of reaching people for Jesus isn't something that gets sprinkled on top when it's convenient. The gospel is fundamentally, this story, a God condescending to be with unlovable people who do not deserve him. That's what the story is. It is driven by compassion. It's not sprinkles. It's the main course. It's the way. The answer to this fear that Paul feels is not brash overconfidence. It's not hiding. It's Jesus. And I don't mean it in the bumper stickery way. I mean this in the Son of God incarnate in a human body which bled on a Roman cross while experiencing the hell you and I deserve kind of way. That's what I mean. If I had a crystal ball and I could see into the future and man, I could tell you in 10 years, persecution for Christians just gets awful. It gets worse than we could ever imagine. How would we prepare? What would we say from the pulpit? Would the answer be to go, well, go fight like everybody else. Well, go hide like everybody else. No, it would be to draw to the gentle savior of Jesus. It would be to know him better and to draw next to the person of Christ. The answer yesterday is the answer today and it's the answer tomorrow. It's the person of Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? Show his mercy and compassion and justice to the world and this is what Jesus offers Paul. This is what Jesus tells Paul. Keep speaking. Firstly, hear my words and give them to you straight up. Secondly, I'm surrounding you with people. You can't see them, but I'm surrounding you with people who love me and follow me. There's this spiritual reality to the presence of Christ, but there's also a physical reality through the people God surrounds Paul with and through the church. And I just want to look, lastly, last thing I want to look at, if you look through this passage in 18, it's just people are popping up all over the place who are there to help and serve with Paul. People get this little mention, they don't even get lines, but they're just there doing cool things. The first people stepping up that I want to end by thinking about is this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. I want to think about them because in many ways they're the embodiment of the worst case scenario. They have experienced persecution as Christians. They're a married couple in Rome. Some riots break out. The government decides that these faults, these riots are the fault of Jewish people who follow after Jesus. We have some historical documents. They miswrite Christ. They say Crestus. But they decide that these people who are following Crestus need to be kicked out of Rome. This is another one of those easy things, like when you're reading the Bible and you just read, and they were driven out of Rome, it's easy just to read that and move on. But just stop and think for a second about the experience this couple has. They're in Rome, political turmoil, and the government says, you're out if you are affiliated with Christianity. And they have to leave. They're home the place where they make their living, they have their community, all of that, they're driven out. And they had to wonder, I'm sure, why does this happen to us? What is the point? Is God with us in this? And you know what? This was 100% in God's design. Because they wandered to Corinth, this town, which from the outside looks even more against God than anything they've seen before, and they just go to work, and in their business, they start working with some guy named Paul. And there it goes. 
So not only did God know that this couple needed service from Paul, but he knew that Paul would be afraid. He knew that Paul would need people like Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila don't get many lines in the story, but basically every time they show up, they're doing something incredible. There's also some pretty humorous debates about when their names are written out, Priscilla always comes first, which is not the etiquette of the day. It would have been the male name first and the female name. Just go back and read people's debates on why that is. I read maybe she was just smarter than he was. Uh, I I don't know. I'm not even going to wade into that. But what I do think is interesting is that it's not just him. It's both of them together. They are both serving the kingdom of God. Later on in Acts 18, this teacher comes in, Apollos, who teaches, but he's not fully, he doesn't fully understand the gospel. And the scriptures make it clear that they reach out to him and they together disciple him, which is a beautiful and awesome thing. They run a little Bible study for this guy named Apollos who does this great teaching on behalf of the kingdom of God. As Paul eventually says, they risked their lives for me. I was thinking about um, Tim Keller this past week, uh, who's just a great teacher in New York City. And he argued that there's this relatively common experience in the church of non-transformation in spite of the on-paper promise of the Spirit's power. In other words, why do people go to church and they, don't, they aren't transformed despite the promises of the Spirit? He argued that it's largely due to the breakdown of communal Christianity formation in our day. Now, we have a tendency to think of ourselves as these shallow, individualistic kind of Christians, but we're not. We're this large community. And thank God, Priscilla and Aquila ran a little Bible study that met with Apollos. And thank God, they went to work, and they paid attention, and they thought, that guy, he seems to also love God. I need to reach out to that guy. There was a community surrounding Paul. Just read through Acts 10 and watch as people show up. Timothy comes. Silas comes. That's where the rubber hits the road. It can be easy to think that our Bible study or your prayer or VBS or what have you or your service doesn't matter, but it's like one of the primary ways God reaches out and gives us ammunition against fear. In conclusion, I just want to say Priscilla and Aquila faced the issue that those soldiers faced in the 101st Airborne. They were singled out and sent away. They looked like everyone else, but then they were mocked called out, sent away, but you know what? The away was where Jesus and his people were. They were never alone. Jesus came for the outcasts. They were never alone. We don't have to be alone either, and that's why we don't have to be afraid. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that your gospel was good yesterday, today, and it will be good tomorrow. I praise you for the comfort of the cross that is defined by love. If it wasn't, if it wasn't defined by love and compassion towards us, we wouldn't be here. Father, for those of us who have followed you but maybe forgotten, help us to remember who you are, the cost of coming for us, the joy that you experience in being with us. For those of us who have not chosen to follow you, Father, I ask that we would feel the appeal of your goodness towards us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that we do not have to be afraid. In Jesus' name.